Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm the publisher of Women's Agenda and I'm with my Agenda Media co-founder and the editor-in-chief of Women's Agenda, Tyler Lambert. So on the agenda this week, well, there is actually a lot. So I think we should just get through the intro music first. Thank you for listening. Hello, Tala. How are you? I'm okay, Ange. I feel like this week's been a lot. There's just been no shortage of horrifying news stories um, that have kind of gripped our attention this week and, and everything that's coming out of Afghanistan um, has been particularly gruelling to watch and, and I just feel like that's um, been really consuming me the last week. Yes, I think it has been consuming a lot of people and I totally relate and I think because it's it's also that sense of being in lockdown and feeling pretty challenged by your own situation and then realising obviously just how much tougher it is for not only other people also in lockdown but obviously other women and girls internationally as well. So clearly very much on our agenda. So on today's episode, we actually have two interviews, which is which is really nice. So I'm really happy to bring that to you. Two very different interviews. So the first really to highlight the uh, key topic of our agenda and women's agenda this week, which is obviously Afghanistan. So Tala will be sharing her interview that she did earlier today with Mariam Vaisadeh. And Mariam is the co-chair of the Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights, among many other things. And we'll do a bit more of an intro in just a moment. Our second interview is uh, with Senator Maureen Faruqi, who's talking about her new book, Too Migrant, Too Muslim, Too Loud. And we'll also introduce her a little later on in the show after we go through a couple of key stories and obviously that interview with Mariam. So Tyler, we do like to start with a win for women and I think that that is extremely positive, uh, extremely needed this week, I should say. So what is your win? So I have a couple of quick wins that I want to share this week. Um, The first comes from Yalda Hakim, who is the Afghan-Australian reporter um, for the BBC, who this week was called out of the blue in the middle of another interview that she was doing by a spokesperson for the Taliban. And her composure during what would have been just such a confronting moment was absolutely amazing. She just peppered him with all of the questions that everyone is is wanting to know about the place of women within this new Taliban regime. And I was just so in awe of her listening to, to that interview. And I just think she is just someone that we just need to put on an absolute pedestal in this country. She'd come to this country when she was six months old and she'd fled Kabul with her, her mother on a horse um, and had since, you know, grown up in Australia, gone to school here, but she's subsequently kind of lived all over the world and reported in some of the most confronting places in the world on some of the biggest issues that our world faces. And yeah, look, I encourage anyone who hasn't listened to this interview um, that Yalda did to go and and pick up on that and um, and also just, you know, look at her backstory because she's amazing. And, and a second one, I know this, no, this is a little bit weird and it's not really a win for women, but I feel like it's kind of a personal win and a, a personal moment for me. But I wrote on the death of uh, Sean Locke today and I felt like he was just such a giant of a comedian and so impressive in what he did and I'm so sad to hear that he has gone. Um, and I wrote about my own experience of feeling, you know, really kind of out of depth and overwhelmed um, during that first year of my pregnancy and um, and really relying on the comedy of Sean Locke during that time. And I think it made me reflect on the period that we're in and just how much how much bad news we face every day at the moment and how important comedians are for everyone right now and just finding that solace in 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 something like that and i'm yeah as i said i'm i'm deeply sad that he's gone but i i uh, i just wanted to pay tribute to him on this podcast as well um so those are my two quick stories that gripped me this week and i guess yada hikim especially is a, a big win for women yeah, yeah, it was extraordinary. And that story is everywhere. Um, people have really loved 
reading about that, it was incredible to watch her and she is just, well, I hope that maybe we can do something more with her in the future, but that Australia recognises that incredible talent that we've got there. My wins for women, which I should probably get to, the gender pay gap, it's gone up. (laughs) What a win. That is not a win. It's a win for the pay gap. It's a win for men. Well done. Well done to the men in construction. So the ABS and the Workplace Gender Equality Agency have looked at the gender pay gap and found that it has gone up. It is at 14.2%. It is supposed to be getting narrower and that had kind of been at least part of the trajectory at least for a period there and it was something that the coalition government has previously celebrated Um, But, you know, apparently progress made is not necessarily sustained. So that has gone up um, and the construction sector, they have highlighted that. And you might remember that it is a male-dominated industry, obviously. And it was one of the few industries to get very specific and targeted COVID-related stimulus last year. So Mm -hmm. salaries there went up and more men's salaries went up and women's salaries did not quite keep up with it. So there you go. Yeah, that's a a grim win. That is a grim win. Um, (laughs) Maybe I should try another. Okay, my my other win will be that it was World Humanitarian Day yesterday. Um, I ran a session with ActionAid on this last night and we had their India director involved as well as Natasha Stottis-Boyer and it was just a really powerful event highlighting um, the global sisterhood and solidarity. I think that we're feeling for women and girls in varying circumstances and situations all over the world. Um, I actually sort of ended that session um, kind of having a bit of a tear, which was a bit awkward because I did have to close out the session, but, and it was a moment of just feeling a bit of hope and optimism after a very difficult week just to see how engaged the audience were in that discussion and to hear Natasha speak and to hear Dipali Sharma speak, who is the Action Aid India director, who talked about India's second wave of COVID and how female leaders really stepped up to curb misinformation, to join the volunteer effort to support women through domestic violence and you know, it was just a reminder that with all this happening globally, that in, in crises we we see women step up and, you know, women have to. And women are, as Natasha put it, women are the shock absorbers of the pandemic, but still we see women show their strength and their resilience and their determination. So that was my win, just, you know, having that opportunity just for a moment then to celebrate that. I think that is a very good win. Mm. All right. Okay. So now to the situation in Afghanistan. So uh, as we know, I think it's been, what, five, six days since the Taliban was able to to take Kabul. And we've seen some of the devastating images coming out of Afghanistan, particularly around the airport and the desperation of people trying to get onto those planes. And I think that that vision and that footage is going to stick with all of us for a long time to come. We've heard the Taliban try to claim that they've changed. There's a sort of PR spin media machine going on that, you know, women will be able to work and that uh, women will be able to continue their education. But, you know, we're also hearing about massive atrocities already occurring. And, and just to see that desperation, you know that that's not necessarily the case. So in Australia now we're in this situation where I think Australia's accepted or said that we'll accept, what is it, 3,000? Refugees? Yep. Thailand? That was the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Kosovo is is, is taking 10,000. Canada is taking 20,000. Um, so this is absolutely pathetic from Australia. We've been in this war for, for 20 years um, and I'm just stunned and horrified that this is what we, what we do at this point. It, it's just absolutely disgusting. Anyway, um, So, Mariam, and I might say that she's a win for me this week because she's been an incredible spokesperson. She's been all over the media. She's written some really powerful pieces, and I encourage you to go and follow her on Twitter as well because she is sharing things from her family and and friends in Afghanistan. And she's also led this petition, which you might want to go and sign. I think more than 100,000 Australians have already signed it, calling on the government to extend that refugee intake. So please go and check that out. But so Mariam Vasaide is, uh, she was born in Afghanistan during the Soviet war and she arrived in Australia with her parents. She's a lawyer and community rights advocate and 
She has also created the fundraiser to support people in Afghanistan, which you'll find on her Twitter profile and we'll link to. She is the co-chair of the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. So we will cross to that interview now. So I'm joined here today by Mariam Vassadeh, the Executive Director at Diversity Council Australia. Mariam, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's been a really gruelling news week with stories coming out of Afghanistan, which of course is your home country. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm just, I'm generally exhausted, but I suppose it's not really about me. And I often think if I, you know, I'm feeling this level of exhaustion because we're dealing with COVID, obviously, and lockdown and all of those things, but then we're still really, really, really privileged in comparison to those at whom I'm speaking to on the ground. So I've got extended family in Kabul, uh, but also in Herat, in other parts of Afghanistan. And then I've had lots of people reach out to me since. Um and they're just, there is just a palpable fear amongst people there that irrespective of the verbal assurances that we are seeing from the Taliban, the situation on the ground is vastly different. And frankly, uh, there is just a great sense of fear and uncertainty with lots of people fearing for their lives. Yeah. I mean, you wrote a piece for The Guardian this week about how you're watching in despair as the world cuts and runs. Why do you feel the exit strategy from the West has been so so abrupt and so hasty. Mm. Yeah, and look, I'm conscious of uh, not making it about us and them because I'm very much from the West. I'm an Australian as well. And so it's, uh, you know, I don't want it to be seen as a divisive um, rhetoric. But in order to kind of figure out how do we stop this from happening again, you do need to take a look at the root causes and how we kind of got here. And whilst people remember that this has gone on for two decades in particular. There is a huge amount of history that we're not aware of. And frankly, that's understandable. Not everyone's going to understand the nuances surrounding this. And I guess why I and other Afghans feel a sense of potentially the worst abandoning Afghanistan is because at the outset, Australia included, we were involved in the invasion and there was a lot of promises made. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, the exit strategy on behalf of the US in particular, everyone that's involved, NATO as well, it just looks like it was not well thought out. It was an intelligence failure. President Biden himself has indicated that it took them by surprise, relatively speaking. So after trillion dollars spent um, and countless human lives lost, both Afghan and from other countries, it, it just begs the question as to how thought out, well thought out was that strategy. And how this couldn't have been predicted. It, it just feels like a failure on so many fronts and it's just gut-wrenching to watch it unfold because it honestly feels like history just repeating itself. And that's why I'm asking us at this point, while the attention is on Afghanistan, I can almost guarantee it won't be in a week from now or potentially a month from now. And the victims, however, will live on and they will feel the pain for generations to come. There's intergenerational trauma. I'm almost 40 and I live away from Afghanistan, but I'm feeling the pain. I'm feeling the pain and and speaking to victims directly in Afghanistan, um, you know, this trauma will continue. And, and it's not unique to Afghans. If you think about after 9-11, there is basically this identity for so many Muslims post 9-11 that, that all we've known uh, for the vast majority of our lives has been this war on terror. And I remember very distinctly being in high school and then coming back to school the day after 9-11 happened and people who couldn't pronounce my country, I had kids in high school calling it Africanistan at one point, and then suddenly post 9-11 people were like, your country is going to get bombed. And suddenly people knew a thing or two about Afghanistan and since then we have been othered. And that narrative has not changed. It's been a huge mental load, mental drain to have to live with that. And then to watch it all unfold and the fact that there's been foreign intervention in several countries, including Afghanistan, and the fact that, you know, there is so many similarities and it's just the same narrative plays out, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iraq. And it just begs the question, how did we get here and why does this continue to happen? 
Do you feel that the Australian government, who just this week announced that they would be taking in just 3,000 Afghan refugees, do you feel that they are, I guess, preying on that sentiment um, and those those ugly impulses of Australians around that otherness in making a, an announcement like that and, and committing so little when so much more is needed? That's a really good point. And watching the, you know, Q&A episode last night, I, I do think, you know, there is an element of that. I think the commentary coming from um, Minister Peter Dutton certainly echoes those sentiments. Um, and it's, you know, I've been highly critical of this for several years. We've Our rhetoric on asylum seekers and refugees has always been like that. And I made the point this morning on ABC TV that there's very much, I mean, you can say what you like about the history and how we got here and all of that. But then to me, it's really simple, right? I look at it like this. There is a privilege lottery and some of us have won that privileged lottery and benefited from it and others haven't you know and I make the point that I I didn't choose the circumstances of my birth I didn't choose to be born in Kabul Afghanistan midway during the Soviet war and yet I was and you know and Peter Dutton no doubt also didn't choose the circumstances of his birth Um, and yet by virtue of the privileged lottery he does not have to make the kind of decisions that people like my sister-in-law's sister whom I spoke to just the other day in who was in the decisions that she has to make about the safety of her family, about the safety of, you know, her grandson. And so for me, it's it's very simple that we can do more. We have capacity to do more. There is ample precedence that Australia has done more. We've been a generous country and I came here under a humanitarian program from Afghanistan and I am grateful and I'm contributed to the fabric of this society. But, you know, the, the thing about this is that we don't have to be an amazing model minority in order to um, get basic human rights afforded to us. You know, we shouldn't have to prove our humanity. The reality is that we played a role in how this situation has unfolded and the least that we can do. If Kosovo, a country in Europe, has announced this morning they can take 10,000 refugees, um, then why, you know, why can't we, uh, given the situation in Australia? And also I get that we are going through trying times ourselves. I'm talking to you from lockdown in Sydney. I get that this is tough on a number of fronts for Australians. I get that. And I get that this has also been tough on veterans watching this unfold. Um, But I just think, again, reflecting on that privileged lottery, um, we can do more and we should do more. Yeah, absolutely. And Mariam, I just want to ask you one more question. Just on on, um, that topic of Q&A last night, and obviously we heard from Yalda Hakim, who um, is a reporter for the BBC. She's an Afghan-Australian reporter. Um, But she was called by the Taliban this week and and had assurances from the Taliban that, you know, women's rights in Afghanistan would be upheld, that there's, you know, a new agenda and that's very much, you know, this line that they are, are trying to push at the moment. How do you feel about that and do you feel that there is going to be any any difference um, in the way that they operate and their their ideology towards women? Look, um, all of the evidence on the ground seems to indicate otherwise. There's been a lot of um, commentary from experts in this space who've indicated that part of the strategy from the Taliban might be trying to, you know, just sort of hold this next period to wait for the world to turn its attention elsewhere, for the true barbaric nature of this totalitarian regime to come out, we suspect, because what we're hearing in terms of when the cameras are on um, and the vision that is being portrayed by the Taliban is very different to the reality on the ground. Um, I've heard multiple accounts, including speaking to someone directly, as I said, from my extended family, and having her cry to me on the phone and say to me that she's absolutely terrified that her young family could be targeted. Uh, We've heard reports coming out from young Afghans saying, should I be burning my law degree, you know, destroying any evidence of me having an education in case that we, you know, our home gets raided. We are hearing, um, including from that lady that I spoke to, as I said, that they saw two women of a 
Shia background being bashed um, publicly um, just this week. There are, and this is just a couple of incidents. There are multiple other incidents that have also been verified. Some of the images, are, you know, footage is coming out. It tells a very different story. Uh, you don't come in and win government with AK-47s in your hands. Um, that is not the kind of democracy that um, the Afghan people need or deserve. We deserve better and, uh, you know, and there should be more strategic pressure placed um, on Afghanistan through our various diplomatic channels, not a military intervention, um, but there is a lot more that we can do and should be doing to try and alleviate this humanitarian crisis. Um, and while the attention is still on Afghanistan in these, like I said, in this next little while, we need that change to happen because what happens is, you know, attention shifts elsewhere and this human tragedy just continues and, uh, and then we will feel the ramifications of this for decades to come. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, look, my thoughts and everyone's thoughts are, are with, you know, you and your family and every other Afghan in the in the world right now. And I, I truly hope that Australia comes to its senses and, and, you know, increases its humanitarian aid efforts here and, and refugee intakes because God knows we have the capacity to do so and we should absolutely be doing that. Um, but thank you so much for sharing your experience and your voice um, at this time. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Tyler, that was such a powerful interview and I just think that she is such a wonderful spokesperson for this and um, just for, for giving us all that information and just reminding us that we we really have won this privileged lottery as I know that she refers to it and that we really need to use that privilege to do something more um, particularly for these people in Afghanistan. I just, I can't, to see how the, the gains that were made for women and girls over those two decades, I find that one of the hardest things to think about all these women and girls that, that were able to go and get educated and were go, able to go and start their careers and, and have dreams. And I wrote about this earlier this week, you know, last year we were celebrating these stories of, of women in Afghanistan working in STEM projects of building ventilators to support COVID-19 patients. And isn't it wonderful? Look how far these, look what these women are, are doing now because of, of everything that's changed since the fall of the Taliban and just to see that Afghanistan is right back there now. Yeah, and to hear the comments of our government this week that they wouldn't be able to rescue all of the Afghan personnel who have assisted in the Australian mission, that they would be shutting down the embassy within days um, in Kabul. And I agree with Mariam. It does just feel like there's just been this swift up and go and... And this country has been left to pick up the pieces and clearly it's not able to. It's not able to, to fight this Taliban regime and for all that they're claiming that they have now got this new peaceful agenda. We know from the streets of Kabul and, and everything that we're hearing out of that country, as, as Mariam alludes to as well and, and those conversations that she had with her sister-in-law there, that that is not the case. Um and so it's it's terrifying, and um, I really do hope that there's pressure, there's continued pressure on our government to do more here. Um, and I think that Australians are much more aware of of the atrocities that are going on, and and you know much more inclined to step in and want to help right now. I think the last eighteen months has proved to us like how fragile everything is and how fragile our humanity is, and I think it actually has, in a weird way, brought us a little bit more together in that sense. So I I think that even though Morrison, the Morrison government, seems to be kind of capitalising on that that old line of otherness and and um, trying not to do what they should right now in terms of humanitarian aid, I think that they'll ultimately come unstuck there because I feel like most Australians do actually want, you know, these this Afghan these Afghan refugees to be brought here and to to be protected at a time when when, you know, they're facing um such incredible hardship. Yes, absolutely. Um please go and check out that petition. Please go and follow Mariam across social media and you can keep up with some of her work, including her fundraiser that she is doing as well. So 
Thank you again. Thank you, Tala, for that interview. And Tala, another interview now. So we have two this week. So with Senator Maureen Faruqi regarding her new book, uh, Too Migrant, Too Muslim, Too Loud. And I might just say that I am a little bit sad because that book arrived in our office just before lockdown (laughs) and I didn't think to take it with me because I didn't think that here I'd be nine weeks later um, not uh, returning to my office, which is literally two and a half kilometres from where I live. So, (laughs) yes, so I have not read this book, but take us through this interview and what you discuss now. Look, I know that I'll I'll jump to it and um, there'll be an introduction before the interview, but I just always love speaking to Maureen. She's always so generous with her time. She is such a true champion of women's equality and of, you know, stamping out racism in this country and and fighting for, for issues that she believes in, like action on climate change. I just think she is exactly the voice we need in Parliament right now and I love the fact that she's released a memoir uh, while she's still sitting in, in the Senate um, and she says because there's no point releasing a memoir when she is out of parliament. What's the point in that, you know? Right now she's in a position to change things. Right now she's in a position to agitate um, the agenda. And I just, I love that she is just, you know, a real fighter. And, um, and yeah, please go and grab her book. Maureen Faruqi made history in 2018 when she became Australia's first female Muslim senator and the 100th woman to sit in the upper house. Her ideology and agenda for change quickly became apparent in her first speech to Parliament when she shared her vision for a better Australia, where the climate and environment were protected fiercely, racism was stamped out and gender equality was an easy reality. In the four years which have followed, Faruqi has held to these ideals, pushing daily and using her voice for the issues that matter. Her debut memoir has just been published with Alan and Unwin titled Too Migrant, Too Muslim, Too Loud. Maureen joins me today to talk about it and everything else. Um, Thank you so much for making time. How have you been? Hi, Tala. Thanks so much. It's lovely to be here with you. Uh, It's really difficult to say that we are well in these times, to be frank. It seems a little bit inadequate when we have been in New South Wales, um, in Sydney, locked down for eight weeks now. And knowing as well as I know how much people are suffering, um, there's health stress, of course, there's financial stress, there's so much anxiety uh, with over-policing in many suburbs. And on a very personal note as well, um, you know, like our border closures has meant that so many of us who are migrants in Australia have not been able to see their loved ones for years now. I mean, I go to bed with a heavy heart and wake up with a heavy heart because I haven't seen my 84-year-old mother in more than two years now. And every time I speak to her, her one hope and wish is that she sees me before she dies. Um, And that's a very difficult reality to live with. And I have to say that, you know, FaceTime and Zoom and all seem so inadequate now when all I want to do is like hug my mother. Um, and I know that so many others are in, a, you know, in a similar state. So tough times. Um, but, you know, we've got to keep pushing ahead and make sure that people are vaccinated, make sure that the government does their job in supporting people financially so they can actually stay home and stay safe. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your story. And, and I think you're right. You know, so many people are feeling so strung out by this this lockdown and the pressures that are that people are facing and, um, you know, what you've identified there with with migrant communities, particularly facing so many challenges during this period. Marina, I want to talk to you about your book and I want to talk about the impetus for it as well. What motivated you to capture your story in this way? And it's a memoir that is so very different to most political memoirs. Why is it important that stories like yours come to life? I quite deliberately chose to write my memoir and manifesto while I was still in Parliament. You often see parliamentarians once they retire, then they write their life story. But for me, I think it's important to do it while you're there to tell people what the reality of politics is and to listen to people while you're telling them that reality to see how you can bring those voices, their voices of the community back into Parliament. But it's also about, I guess, encouraging others to take action too. And, you know, the actions that they take 
while I'm in politics, I can do something about it. It's telling people also that you can do politics on your own terms, that you don't have to be captured uh, by the system that you've gone in to change. Um, and I think there's so little diversity in terms of cultural diversity in parliaments that the stories of so many migrants are just not told at all. And I thought it was important to tell this story because it's not just my story. It's the story of so many migrants of color who have come to this country and our stories should be told and our voices should be heard. Mm, yeah. I think there's a real bravery in capturing it while you are still in politics as well because, as you said, people can come out and be very open about what their experience has been in politics and, you know, all of these stories and allegations come to the fore throughout these these memoirs, but they don't do us much good um, when they're coming to us when people are, are no longer in a position to change them. So thank you very much for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. I mean, for me, one of the prerequisites of politics is to have some courage. Uh, that's the reason I joined the Greens. That's the reason I left my, you know, a career that I loved in environmental engineering to be part of something that could create change, just not just in Australia, but hopefully in the world as well. Mm, yeah, I think you are definitely doing that. <laughs> um, Maureen, in your first speech to the Senate, you said, it is with great pride I stand here before you unapologetically, a brown, Muslim, migrant, feminist woman and a Green Senator. Why were these identifiers so important to you? So these identifiers, Tara, have been, since I came into public life, have been used to denigrate me almost every single day. And, you know, it seems unbelievable um, that in a place like Australia, which I thought when I was growing up in Pakistan was a country that had reached equality in every sense uh, of the way, because, you, you know, growing up in developing countries, you often are given this view, I guess, of developed countries, uh, you know, as being the beacons of egalitarianism and equality. Um, I had a different expectation of Australia. So it was a bit of a shock that from day one of my public life, my uh, religion, the color of my skin, um, the place where I came from were used to vilify me and, you know, pile on abuse and hate on me. Again, it's not an experience unique to me. We've seen over time more and more of that uh, being piled on. And mostly like women are on the front line of that hatred because it becomes a real toxic mix of sexism and racism uh, when, um, you know, women kind of face this sort of thing. And these are all things that I am proud of. I'm proud of my culture. You know, I'm proud of where I come from. I say, you know, I was made in Pakistan. It was through the perseverance, the, um, you know, the integrity instilled in me by my elders. It's because of that I am who I am. And, you know, I'm not going to let people who don't think that I belong in Australia get away with it. So I embrace these titles, these identities um, that I'm proud of. They make me who I am and I'm not going to shy away as I'm not going to shy away from the fact that Australia is my home. It has been my home for more time than in Pakistan, which is a country of my ancestors. Uh, I'm here to stay. I'm here to change the system. So you know, suck it up, people. I think it is such a powerful way to frame it. And, you know, I think for a lot of migrant women, my mum my included, for instance, um, you know, she always talks about this expectation that was placed on her to assimilate into Australia. And she did so. She moved to Australia, uh, Cronulla in the 1970s and, and, um, and she was very much kind of you know, absorbed into that way of life. But that was the only way for her to to kind of um, be included and be accepted at that point in time. So I think it is so powerful for women like yourself to stand up um, and say, you know, this is me and, and these are the identifiers that I am proud of. I am proud of my cultural heritage, but I am Australian as well. And I, I guess kind of break that barrier down and, and um, reframe that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our Australianness, I find, is conditional because of, you know, uh, the, the hate and abuse and the 
questioning of our belonging to Australia. It becomes conditional on kind of keeping our heads down and our mouths shut. It becomes conditional on, you know, being ever grateful for being let into Australia. It's conditional on agreeing with those who might be in power. And as you said, it's conditional on giving up your identity and assimilating. Well, if we truly believe that Australia is a multicultural country, then the beauty of that country is that we all have our different identities, but we can still live together in harmony and peace. And, and that's, that, that's what I want Australia to be like. But I think we are moving a little bit away from this at the moment. You also noted uh, in your first speech to Parliament that um, Australians have to find the courage to admit that racism in this country exists. Why do you think that that's an admission that we struggle with so acutely? And, and would we be less racist if we learnt to acknowledge that more? That's a kind of a question that's been intriguing me for a while. And I think that there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, I think one of those absolutely is because we are a colonialist country and there is still the existence of white supremacy there. Um, I think a lot of people in power, or I know a lot of people in power, um, again, are mostly, you know, white men. And they have never experienced racism or sexism, for instance. They don't have a lived experience of that. Um, and I think there is probably an element of guilt attached to some, that if we admit that there is racism, then we might have to do something about it. But none of them are kind of reasons to excuse the fact that we cannot accept and acknowledge that there is racism in this country from the day that the colonialists came to Australia and, uh, you know, the, the days of the frontier wars and the, and the bloody dispossession of our First Nations people. Um, so I think those are the reasons. But a lot of countries in the world have kind of acknowledged, for instance, in the U.S., and, you know, we talk a, a lot about the racism in the U.S. against Black Americans, and there is but I think the debate there has moved on from the fact that there is no racism, nothing to see here. Uh, we saw that last year when the, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, the reaction to that was so different in Australia compared to other countries. A lot of other countries immediately started looking at how to dismantle systemic racism. In Australia, it was the protesters that were immediately blamed for coming out in droves at a time where our health might be um, in jeopardy. So I think those are real problems that we have here. And unless, I mean, acknowledging it is just the first step. Without acknowledging it, we can't move to address it. But there is so much more that has to be done after we acknowledge it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we have to be anti-racists. We have to be proactive anti-racists if we want to look at the systems and institutions and how to change them and the racism that those inflict on so many and have been for 200 years on First Nations people and then later on on other people of colour. Mm. You've often spoken about the role of, of politicians in fueling that kind of fire and, and also the media. Do you feel that those two mediums are the most accountable here? Um, it is of deep concern that politicians now for decades, literally, and I think a lot of it is for political gain because division and fear can turn into political gains for some of those who are causing those divisions and fears. Um, and, you know, there has been outright racism being spewed in parliament by politicians. There has been dog whistling and race baiting as well uh, against migrants, against asylum seekers. And of course, then there's been people standing on the sidelines who have said nothing to counter that as well. And I think that's they are to blame. And of course, the right-wing media as well, um, you know, has not played a small part in mainstreaming racism and, you know, Islamophobia and mistruths about some of the migrant communities that have made Australia home. And what that has done is that has legitimized others and unleashed that racism out into the community, whereas the role of politicians and leaders should be to call it out, to make sure that this is unacceptable in any society. And we saw the results of that, Tala, I have to say, in the massacre in Christchurch two years ago, when an Australian man, um, you know, killed 51, mercilessly killed 51 Muslims. 
And Peter Dutton straight away came out to say that your views on that weren't warranted, even though you are the first Muslim woman to be, you know, appointed to um, the parliament in Australia. Absolutely. And it's become unrefutable now with ASIO even saying that 50% of the caseload is now looking at far-right extremism. But yet politicians, whenever I question them about that, immediately jump to equating far-right extremism to far-left extremism and just saying, oh yeah, we've got to deal with all kinds of extremism. Fair enough. But again, there's a real reluctance to admit that there is this neo-Nazi, far-right, white supremacist extremism, which is rising and it is hurting and damaging people every single day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to move on to, I guess, what has happened uh, this year in, in terms of toxic culture in Parliament and the allegations that have come to the fore. In the time that you've been in Parliament, have you noticed any change, bad or good, in the cultural attitude toward diversity and inclusion? I mean, you have to admit that parliaments across Australia, whether they're state or territory parliaments or the federal parliaments, are in no way representative of the streets and suburbs of our country. I mean, I sit there in parliament every day and it is so different to the world that I live in and that I have worked in. Um, so I think that that's, is a real problem. I do think that the voices speaking out about racism, about sexism, have become louder in the last few years and are being heard a little bit more than they were heard when I got into politics in New South Wales Parliament seven years ago now. So that is a positive, but that hasn't translated into the structural change that we need. And for that to happen, I think you know, the people who are in politics at the moment, the people have not that the people have to change, but they've got to be let go of. And, you know, a very different kind of person needs to be in parliament. People who are not pale, male, stale and same. And, you know, when I say same, I mean, it's, you know, they've all come through the political ranks of, you know, staffers and party apparatchiks. It's so stark when you're in there and you realize, my God, they've these people have lived completely different lives to mine when they came stand up and say that, you know, um, education is not a right, it's a privilege. Or, you know, when people say, oh, if you don't have a, if you don't have a house, why don't you just buy one? So I think it's a real problem. And that needs to change. Mm. Or have someone buy it for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Given the nature of what has happened and the allegations that have happened, um, would you still encourage women and girls to consider pursuing careers in politics? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was devastating, Tala, what happened this year was something that people knew about, but it hadn't come out in such a big way. And I think the, the response to it was also um, like incredible and so heartening as well when thousands upon thousands of people, you know, marched towards parliament and especially the young women across the board that showed so much courage from schools to universities to, you know, political staffers like Brittany Higgins. So I think that was so encouraging and it does. A lot of people talk about this moment of change. And I think this is a moment that we need to grab with both hands to make sure that things change. Um, with young women, yes, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, so many young women that I meet and women of colour especially do tell me that how good it feels for them to look into parliament and see someone that looks like them. Um, and, you know, migrants have often told me that when they hear my story, it's reflective of their stories as well. But alongside these feelings as well, they express their hesitation of coming into parliament because of what's happened to, you know, the, the women in parliament, but also what generally happens to women of colour in parliament as well. And, you know, how much um, sexism and racism and vilification they face. And, you know, they think, why do I want to get involved in a system that puts me at so much risk? But my message to those young women is that we must take that risk because without taking that risk, we are at the risk of never making things better for others that follow us. And I think those of us that are there at the moment have this huge responsibility to make sure 
that, you know, the, the revelations that have come to light now are just not that, that we, we do make sure that this is the moment where we will just not back down and that we will make sure that the system changes. The other thing I guess we have to realize as women and especially people of color is that no one's going to roll out a red carpet for us. Uh, if we want to make that change, it is really up to us to make that change. I think you deserve a red carpet, Maureen. <laughs> <laughs> no one deserves a red carpet, Tala. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about the agenda that you are really keen to continue pushing during your time in Parliament and what your hopes are for your ultimate legacy. To be honest, I've never thought of this work or any other work that I've done in terms of leaving a legacy. Uh, for me, being here in Parliament, being one of only 76 other people who have this privilege and a platform to have a voice which, you know, is listened to because of that position that we have, is listened to more than other voices, is to make sure that I use that opportunity in every single way, shape or form. I mean, I came into politics not because it's a career, because for me, it was all about public service. So I deliberately gave up a job that I absolutely loved because I saw, uh, you know, that maybe it was time for me to use my all my professional experience and my lived experience and my work in the community to do something that might have some more influence. And for me, Politics is not about sloganeering or trying to win the next election, to be frank. It is actually about trying to make fundamental changes to things, not just band-aid solutions uh, to the major issues that we face at the moment, which is the climate crisis and the inequality, especially as it impacts gender uh, and minorities. So if I might, I might just read to you a little bit of a section from my book, which might highlight a little bit of what I'm alluding to when I say we really need to make fundamental changes. Please. So for me, calling yourself an environmentalist, a feminist or an anti-racist and being one are completely different things. It's not enough to say I'm an environmentalist if you don't make racial justice central to the struggle of climate justice. It's not enough to say I'm a feminist if you're going to ignore the struggles of indigenous women, women of color, and trans women. It's not enough to say I'm anti-racist if you don't step aside to make space for people of color. We are in a moment of history. Let's make sure our rage doesn't disappear into the abyss of untold history or an unchanged future. This is a moment to be thoroughly pissed off, to speak up, to be loud, to disrupt, to dissent, to organize, to mobilize. That's what I'm here to do, to tell it like it is, to tell the truth, no matter what the consequences. And I think for me, it's absolutely worth every minute of putting your neck on the line if you can create even a small bit of change for those living in society now and for those who are going to follow us. Mm. Maureen Faruqi, thank you so much for joining me and everyone go out and pick up a copy of Maureen's book. If that excerpt hasn't already compelled you to do so, I encourage you to because uh, it's brilliant. And there is absolutely nothing too migrant, too Muslim or too loud about you. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Tala. It's always, always lovely to see you and have a chat to you. Such a privilege. Well, thank you, Senator Maureen Faruqi. Thank you, Tala. Thanks, Anne. Great interview. She speaks so strongly, doesn't she? she I just she is exactly wow. as I said. She is exactly what we need. Well, I just, I mean, I, I love that. You know, I'm not going to let people who don't think I belong in Australia get away with it. That I love that. You know, that she's embracing these titles, that these identities that she says that she feels proud of and make her who she is. I just. I love how she can speak, That just the, the power in her words. It's incredible. So um, thank you for that quote. I can't wait to read that book. 
I'm just, I'll have to get the digital version. I might need to just go without the, the physical copy, go with the digital version. Or um, just do like a night, you know, trek into the office, face mask on, hazmat suit on, you know. I reckon you can do it full Catwoman style. Well, it is a shared office. I might not do that because I think that is illegal. <laughs> Um, and you know, I also don't. I, I'm not supposed to be going there because it is a shared office. So <laughs> hey, I will not be doing that, people. Sometimes don't worry. You whip out your Catwoman suit, though. <laughs> it's, I'll just do that in the uh, safety and uh, the uh, of my own home, where it is perfectly legal, and <laughs> <laughs> have any run-ins with the police or potentially the army at this point. So. <laughs> Feel like we should end on. Uh, something regarding what we are reading or watching going through this time. Do you have any recommendations? Will you be going back and pursuing the uh, all those episodes of your favourite comedian once again or are you engaged in something else? I will be watching a lot of Sean Locke in the next 24 hours. There's a fair, there's a fair chance of it. Um, I just love him so much. And anyone who doesn't know Sean Locke, please go and look him up and watch YouTube clips because he will make you feel infinitely better about the world. Um, but I also, I don't know, what I what am I watching right now? Nothing very good, Ange, to be honest. I, I just got sent the new Sarah Bailey novel, which I'm very excited about. She's an Australian um, crime author. It looks awesome. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very excited to kind of get absorbed in that this weekend too. Um, but what about you? What's What's on your watch list? Literally nothing. So These are great recommendations, by the way. Thank you, Tyler, for an excellent episode. Thank you for those two interviews. That um, was a lot. So thank you for getting that done, particularly for stepping in for me this morning when I uh, had uh, a situation of not being able to escape my small children to be able to take the quiet time required for an interview. So all the best with your coming weekend and thank you for listening. Thanks, Ange. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can access all the stories that we discussed in some form on our website. And we'll also share the various links to Mariam's social media and the fundraiser that she is running, as well as that online petition as well that you can sign. And you'll see our wrap-up of Senator Maureen Faruqi's uh, interview as well. Tala, it's been great. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you for listening.